Thank you for coming to the podcast. This is Top Turtle MMA Podcast on FlowCombat.com. I'm Daniel Gobi Freeland, joined as always by my co-host Shockwave Dave Tremonte. UFC back in Vegas this weekend for Uriah Hall versus Anderson Silva, a main event that's going to be a tearjerker for a lot of us who grew up in the Spider era. We'll be breaking down that fight as well as two other of our favorite fights on this main card as part of Fights, Dogs, and Parlays, where we'll also give you an underdog and a parlay we think you should play. And let me tell you, we hit both of them last week, so you're going to want to make sure to tune in this week so that you can pick up a little extra cash with us. Plus, you're also going to want to tune into our interviews. we got a couple of exciting guys coming off the Contender Series, making their, well, one of them's making their UFC debut. One of them is returning to the UFC after nine years. I'm talking with Dustin Jacoby about his layoff, how long he was away, kickboxing, all kinds of other things. Plus, we'll be talking to Adrian Yanez, who picked up a very quick KO in his Contender Series bout, and he's excited to make his debut as well. Of course, this episode is brought to you by Maroon Social, M-A-R-U-N-E. Maroon Social is the one and only social media app for the martial arts enthusiast. Whether you do kickboxing, judo, sambo, jujitsu, or any other martial art, it is the best place to log your training sessions because you can tag different techniques which tells you how much you're working on them week to week, month to month, so that you can make the gains that you want to make. Plus, you can log competitions, weigh-ins, and so much more. Check Maroon Social out wherever it is you download apps. Maroon Social brings you this episode of Top Turtle MMA Podcast, and it starts right now. The hosts are ready. The fighters are ready. Listeners, make some noise if you are ready! for Top Turtle MMA with Shockwave and Gumby. And joining me now is Dustin Jacoby, who fights Justin Ledette at UFC Hall versus Silva in Vegas this Saturday. So, D- Dustin, I got to ask you, you know, you're, you're 0-2 in the UFC way back in your early 20s. You try out Bellator a little bit, the Professional Fighters League, you know, mixed results in all of those different places. You leave MMA and have this, like, wildly successful kickboxing run, right? You have championships and you have big fights. What made you think to yourself, I, I need more MMA in my life after all of that? Yeah, man. I mean, you know, when I first fought for the UFC, you know, nine years ago now, um, I was a young, a young kid, uh, 23 years old, and I just really wasn't there mentally. And I, you know, I, I've just, I've had a lot of battles outside of, and I really grew um, as a fighter with glory kickboxing. And um, I knew when I first got cut that, um, you know, I, I continued fighting MMA and then I had a big opportunity with glory that came and, and I just continued having glory fights, which kept me, um, you know, my main focus on kickboxing, which is, uh, you know, when I did my stints with Bellator and, and the, the other promotions, I just wasn't 100% focused on MMA. And, um, here I am, you know, back, I always knew that MMA and the UFC was the ultimate goal to get back to the UFC and, and, uh, you know, I rose through the ranks with glory and fought for a world title and unfortunately suffered, suffered an arm break a couple different times, which led me back to MMA. And uh, here I am, man, with my second stint with the UFC and another opportunity to uh, get my first career UFC victory. Yeah. and uh, so, so you said in there that the UFC was always kind of your goal, right? And that, that was sort of the end result. 
Was there ever a time when you were in glory, you know, you're heading for a world world kickboxing championship that you're thinking to yourself, maybe I don't go back to MMA or maybe like this is this is my life now, kickboxing? You know, when I was with Glory and, and I started to rise and I was going for the world title, you know, I, I did. I was like, hey, man, if I become a world champion in Glory, maybe I'll continue uh, just with kickboxing. But, you know, like I said earlier, in the back of my head, I my goal was always to get back to the UFC to kind of finish my career where I started. And, um, you know, that's what I did. I, I had my opportunity on the Contender Series and now I'm back. Absolutely. Now, now I got to ask, too, you know, you had one fight before you went to the Contender Series. You fought Cody East at heavyweight on a, a regional promotion. Were you surprised that the UFC came calling like right after that? You you had had one fight in five years in MMA. Were you surprised that they wanted to see you on the Contender Series? You know what? I was more so surprised that I had to go the Contender Series route, to be honest with you. You know, I, I brought I had a ton of experience with Glory and uh, I'd fought some very high level guys, you know, so um, and I and I was willing, you know, I was trying to get MMA fights on the regional scene, but I'm not kidding, man. It seemed impossible to get a, to a fight, which is why I accepted a fight with Cody East at heavyweight, because nobody uh, regionally at 205 or even middleweight would would fight. And, you know, so I did what I had to do, man. I, I went and fought a, a UFC vet and, you know, I beat him uh, pretty decisively. So. Um, I know that with my experience with Glory, it, it really, uh, you know, it molded me into the fighter I am. It gave me the confidence to compete at a high level, and I had an opportunity to grow with a big organization. And, uh, you know, I, I quickly became the man with Glory. I became, uh, you know, one of the stars in their promotion, and it gave me the confidence uh, to do that with the UFC. And is that what you think maybe was lacking in your, your first run? I mean, obviously, you're 23. You're, you're super inexperienced at that time, too. But what, was that really what was lacking in your first run that you feel like you didn't have the confidence to like sort of be the man, like you said? Yeah, I mean, I, I've always been a very confident person. I've always had the confidence. But, yeah, exactly, to actually uh, to believe it. You know, I remember being in the UFC my first time and uh, sitting in the fighter meetings and looking around me and, you know, looking at the big names I was sitting next to and in the fighter meeting with Dana White and just thinking to myself, man, do I really belong here? And – um, you know, now the second time through, I know I belong, man. I know that uh, I, I, I feel have a strong feeling I'm going to go on a nice run here. And, uh, you know, if I can go string four, five, six fights together, six wins together and uh, put myself on the map, you know, and a big uh, a guy that really helped me with that was Anthony Smith. You know, we came up on the regional scene together. Uh, in 2018 is when, you know, he had his opportunity with John Jones, it's actually 2019 early, but 2018 is when he got a hold of me. He was like, Hey man, I could use your help with John Jones, you know, preparing for John Jones. And, you know, and I just look at him and, and us training together in the gym. And I, I look at the run that he went on and, you know, I look at myself, I'm like, dude, you could do the same thing. And, uh, you know, that's what I'm out to do. I'm out to go on a nice little run like Anthony did. I love that mentality. Now, I, I got to ask you, too, because you said you were looking around the room. Now, granted, that that was a long time ago, right? That's like nine years ago we're talking. Yeah. You, do you remember some of the names that you saw around you that you were like, man, do I belong next to, you know, put insert name here? Yeah, yeah. The man, It was UFC 137. I remember I, I watched the Diaz brothers walk in. It was uh, Nick Diaz was fighting BJ Penn. BJ Penn was in there. Uh, guys like Chet Congo. Uh, was on that card, and uh, I, those are the two that really stick out to me. The three, I guess, is like Dia, the, and, and and of course not just them, but their whole camps. You know, these guys that uh, their teammates are with them, and I just, 
you know, I saw all these guys. So I was like, holy crap, man, do I belong? And, uh, you know, this time's way different, man. I, I, I've been through the battles. I've been through the, you know, adversity in my career. And I know I'm ready to, to be the man. I love it. I love it. Now, I, I'm curious, too, because, you know, you, you've mentioned a lot about your kickboxing and the confidence it brought you. But we're also seeing a lot of kickboxers make the switch to MMA right now and be super successful, right? Like we saw Giga Chikadze is like 5-0 and in the UFC. Obviously, Israel Adesanya has got a long kickboxing career. Yeah. Is, is, is that something that you take personally, too, looking at the fact that all of these guys who've, who've kind of gone a similar path, at least to some extent, as you are being so successful? Yeah, man. It gives me the confidence. And, and like I said, the... It seems like MMA kind of goes through phases where, you know, you see the champions that are, you know, there was stand-up guys and there was wrestlers and jiu-jitsu guys. And I feel like kickboxing and Muay Thai is really coming back. And, um, you know, now that my takedown, I feel like my takedown defense is, you know, some of the best it's ever been. And, you know, another thing that's really cool that, that it, it, not a lot of people know is when I fought Simon Marcus the second time, uh, we were fighting for a world title, and we were the main event. And you know who was on that undercard? Israel Adesanya. And uh, you know, so that that's pretty crazy. I was just telling my, we talked to my wife about that the other day. Is you know, I and and at the time, like nobody even really knew who he was. And um, I think he was like, you know, like the third or fourth fight of the night, kind of like here I am on Saturday, the third fight of the night, and. You know, there I was at the main event. So to see him trans transfer over and have great success, man, he's done awesome and he's went on a great run and uh, gives me the confidence. And I know that um, as long as I can avoid those takedowns, that you know, my I'm one of the best strikers in the world, and I'm out to prove that. Love it. And and you're fighting a guy. Let, let's talk a little bit about the fight too, because you're fighting Justin Ledet this weekend. He's a guy who seems to be more into his boxing than he is into takedowns. You don't see him shoot too many takedowns. When they came to you with this name, was it like an ideal opponent for you, a guy who might want to stand and trade with you? Yeah, 100%, man. I was actually on the golf course when my manager and my coach gave me a call, and so I had no idea who it was. I hadn't heard of Justin Ledette before, but, you know, they assured me. They were telling me, you know, I think this is a great fight for you. It's a perfect matchup. Um, you know, it's a guy that's willing to, to stand and bang with you, and um, I think that you can really go out there and, and use all of your tools and, and really shine. And, you know, I got done playing the round, and I looked him up, and I was like, man, I, I just knew that it was a tailor-made opponent for me. And with that being said, you know, Justin Ledette, he, he's tough, man. He, he came in and, and got going right away. He was 3-0 and in the UFC, and then he's lost his last uh, three fights. But, you know, he's fought some tough competition, you know, fighting, losing to Rakic and who is now, you know, a top five guy and, and a really big guy. And you got, uh, uh, oh, Jordan, uh, oh, what the heck's his name? Johnny Jordan, Walker. Uh, Johnny Walker, <laughs> yes, thank you, thank you. You got Johnny Walker. That's the first time I forgot his name. Uh, you know, he's losing guys like Johnny Walker. And, you know, he's had some tough fights in his losses. So, um, Ledette, you know, he's good everywhere. You, If you watch a stand-up, he's got clean boxing. I just think that... You know, I'm a little bit better, and I can't wait to to prove that. And I'm excited about a guy. You know, my last fight in the Contender Series was against a guy that I knew the only chance he had was to take me down and wrestle me. He was a big, strong guy, and, you know, he, he tried 13 times. He finally got me once there at the end of the third round, and I defended 12 of those takedowns. So um, I'm excited to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with a guy that wants to go out there and take my head off because, you know, that's what that's my game. Absolutely. Now, I usually like to ask before I let the fighters go, do you got a prediction for how this one ends? How you see it going down? You know, uh, 
Justin's a very durable guy. You know, I, I just want to go in there and you ask me how I'm going to win a fight, man. I always say by knockout. I always see it. I always believe it. That's what I train for. That's how I win fights. And, uh, you know, so if you ask me a prediction, I think I'm going to win by knockout. I don't know. Um, you know, like I said, he's a durable guy, so I can't go out there and just blow my wad and, and, uh, you know, try to go for the knockout. I just got to set, set my strikes up and, and set, use techniques that, that are going to end with the fin with the knockout blow. All right. Well, you heard it here first, folks. This is Dustin Jacoby, who fights Justin Ledet at UFC Hall versus Silva in Vegas this weekend. Dustin, thanks so much for the time, man. I really appreciate it. I appreciate it too, Dan. And that interview with Dustin Jacoby is brought to you by ProPace Sports Metrics. You can follow them on Twitter at ProPace App. It is from the creator of the Grapple App, which is a jiu-jitsu game that you can find as well. It is an Android app that is designed to measure your drive and improvement of your athletic performance. The really cool feature on it is the Striking Clinic, which uses your phone's microphone to detect your kicks and punches, which drives up your work rate by giving you beeps for when your next strike is due. And the really cool thing about that is not only does it tell you when your next strike is due, but it uses that microphone to score whether or not you landed the strike right around the time you're supposed to. Okay, so then they give you feedback, they give you graphs, they give you charts, they give you all kinds of analysis that you can use to make yourself better. And it's not just like a one-size-fits-all app either. You don't necessarily have to have a really fast timer or a really slow timer. They got five different difficulty levels with shorter or longer intervals just for you. So I highly suggest checking all of this out because you can not only use this to improve your own performance, but you can challenge your friends on Twitter as well. Check them out, ProPace Sports Metrics on Twitter, that's ProPace app, and you can pick that up in the Android app store. All right, and joining me today is Adrian Yanez, who fights Victor Rodriguez at UFC Hall versus Silva in Las Vegas this weekend. So, Adrian, I want to start by taking it back to your Contender Series fight, because on there, Paul Felder on the broadcast said that you look like a young Jorge Masvidal in both how you actually look and how you fight. Did, did you get a chance to hear that comparison? And if so, what did you think of it? Oh, yeah, man. I've just been hearing that comparison for the last, like, couple of weeks, man. So uh, ever since I debuted on the, the Contenders, man, I've just been getting that left and right. Uh, and then also a little bit before in, in an LFA post, whenever I fought Kyle Estrada, somebody was come, calling me a mini Masvidal. So, so I've had it for, I, I've been, I've gotten the comparison a little bit, uh, before, but man, I, I honestly take it as an honor, man. I heard it, I heard it whenever I rewatched the, rewatched the, uh, <clears throat> the fights, the, the fights. And, you know, it's really cool, you know, cause uh, that's someone who I like. That's someone who I like to watch fight, you know, even back, uh, when he's fighting out like Quinta and everything, uh, when he was having those tougher split decision losses, uh, I, I loved watching him fight even then, uh, cause I knew the potential was there. Uh, so man, getting those, getting those comparisons to me are a blessing because I like, like I love the way he fights slick boxing hands, hands for days. And, you know, now he's getting the knockouts, you know, which, you know, makes it even better on my end, you know, cause I'm lost. So I get that comparison. So I'm loving it, man. I'm really loving it. That's awesome. And you mentioned in there every time that you watch the fights, have you gone back and watched your contender series bout more than more than once a couple of times? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because it was one of those things that that I've had. I went back to. And to me, it's it's just it was just one of those things that I've 
it's kind of still a little surreal to me. He's like, man, I, I actually did that. <laughs> I like, I, I went out, I went out there and I uh, got, got the contract to the UFC, which I've been, which has been a big goal of mine since I turned pro and man, it's, I've been aspiring and dreaming to be at this position. So it's just one of those things that I, I look back on it as fond memory memories, you know, like the, the, the performance is kind of hard to critique. You know, if I look at it, you know, I did take two leg kicks. I should have been checking those. Uh, and then he, when he hit me up against the fence, he hit me with a couple of right hands. Uh, and then a couple of things I should have done a little bit better within the 39 seconds, but yeah, uh, I, I, I try not to get a little obsessive of watching those small little details where I did wrong. But, yeah, I go back, and it's just fond memories of me just looking. and uh, It's just fond memories. And you're like, man, I, I, got to, I, got, I got to that position. I passed with flying colors. I hit one of the biggest goals that I set for myself, and it's just one of those that I go back to whenever, you know, I just want to remind myself, like, hey, I'm here. Yo, I, I gotta ask you, man, because you're sitting here telling me you got a 39 second knockout. You're in front of Dana White. You're getting your contract, and you're going back watching this fight and pointing out the negative things. And in addition to that, too, on the broadcast, you you seem to doubt whether or not you got a contract. Are you usually this hard on yourself, man? Yeah, man. I, I man, uh, they, as, as they usually say, you know, you you're your own hardest critic, you know, and that's definitely me. Even in a knockout win, you know, I always go back and see what I could do better. Uh, I, I should, I, I shouldn't have let him, shouldn't have let him hit me up against the fence that easy. Uh, you know, even though I was able to escape within a couple, within like a couple seconds, you know, I just shouldn't have been in that position. Also, I didn't check the leg kicks, you know, which I should have, you know, it, I saw them coming. I just didn't check them. I, uh, and then there was a couple of things where I should have followed up a little bit more. Uh, I shouldn't have hesitated whenever I threw the threw the couple. Like once I dropped them, I shouldn't have hesitated. I should have automatically shot straight in. But uh, yeah, I can go back and I I can I can sit back and pinpoint the stuff that I was doing wrong and I should have done better. Uh, so yeah, I, I I'll go back. I'm I'm always hard on myself, you know. I, and honestly, that that that's what helps me strive for perfection. You know, even though perfection is very uh, like it's non-existent, but you're always striving for it. I'm all, so I'm chasing something that's never ending. So that's the good part on my end. You know, I'll never stop learning. I'll never stop improving. So yeah, man, it, being hard, being hard on myself, you know, I, I'm, a, it, it just helps me improve, man. I, I, I kind of love being that way. Uh, some people find it a detriment, but to me, man, I, it's helped me grow in all, in all aspects. And if you've been like this forever, because I, I know you made your, your amateur debut, you were like 18 years old, so you, you've been fighting for, even though you're only 26, you've been fighting for eight years at this point. Has that sort of been how you've operated since you first stepped into the cage? Yeah, yeah. I've, I've, it's one of those things that I've always had to go look back at. And uh, my very first amateur fight, my very first amateur fight, actually, like, I wasn't even 18. I was like, I was about to turn 18. I was like 17. 17 a uh, month and a half later i was turning 18 so i was like i look back at that fight and i was like geez i was tired man i i was <laughs> i was like man i was like i gotta work on my cardio so ever since then where like cardio has been one of the things i remember in the fight my legs were the first thing to go so now that's that's what i focus on every single fight like i gotta hit my runs i gotta do this i gotta do that i gotta make sure i'm in shape so uh that's always another thing that i get to add onto my into my game and just like on my jabs, I used to drop my jabs a lot. I used to have like another big one, actually a very, very big one. I broke my jaw in like my first, my my second pro fight. So 
what does that tell me? I gotta, I gotta use more head movement. I gotta, gotta, gotta get my boxing game up. I, I can't get hit anymore. So, uh, that's one thing that I've implemented as well. And then also placing my punches instead of winging them out. I, I can go back and pinpoint almost every single time in a fight where I, what I should have done and what I didn't do. And I, I'm just, I'm just that type of guy. I, I, I love going back and, uh, problem solving. You know, I need to, I need to get better. And I'd like kind of am, like I'm kind of like really like OCD about that. I, I want to get better in all aspects. I, I love that mentality, man, and and it definitely shows. Now I, I'm curious too. Well, is is your memory just because you're recalling fights, dude, that were like seven or eight years ago to like a pinpoint to a T? Do you, do you just have like one of those memories that that remembers every single small aspect of a fight like that, or, or is this something that you you take notes on? This is something that you remember for some other reason? Oh man, I, I can recall fights back, uh, back at least for mine. I can go back and recall some fights and and just uh, sit there and recall them play for play. But also, if you were to tell me something right now and in the next five minutes, I'm gonna forget it. <laughs> so, it's that weird balance, you know. But I guess it's just something that uh, that I've kind of drilled in my head. You know, it's fighting. You know, it's a. Uh, I can go back to sit. I can sit back and tell you where I where I saw my first. Uh, saw my first fight, you know, the first fight where they, it intrigued me into MMA. I was actually at my uh, grandfather's house and, you know, I was watching the ultimate knockouts and I saw Matt Hughes slam Carlos Newton on his head and win the title. So I was like, like it was on the, I think it was like ultimate knockouts, like six. And this was way back in the day. I think this was like, well, whenever I was like 13, 14, maybe even 12 years old or whenever it was on spike TV, I think it was on channel 48. Dude. Yeah. I can go back. <laughs> I can re- I can really go back, but, uh, you know, I have these weird, weird memories of, like, uh, of fights and when, where I was, like, Anderson Silva, when he fought Vitor Belfort, uh, I was at, I was at CC's, and this, this CC's was, uh, they were doing some shady things, you know, they weren't supposed to be doing this, but they were selling beer, <laughs> they, were, they were selling beer and, uh, like, making everybody pay $5 so they can watch the fight, watch the fight, and you get free pizza and everything, so, uh, I was there, I was, I know exactly where I was sitting at, and I remember watching Anderson Silva front kick uh, Vitor Belfort in the face. So, <laughs> so yeah, I have like very weird, weird, mo- weird moments where I can recall what exactly I was doing to the pinpoint. Uh, but yeah, like if you ask me what I was doing yesterday, I'm just gonna be like, uh, yeah, I can't remember everything <laughs> word for today, So, <laughs> so, so I gotta ask you, you've got that that memory that that has you pegged right where you saw Anderson Silva front kick Vitor Belfort in the face. What does it mean for you to be fighting on his last fight card then? Obviously, that's a, that's a name that's stuck in your head. What, what's it mean to be there in the fighter's room for his retirement fight? Man, it, it's honestly, it's, it's, I'm, I'm, it, it's a shot in the dark for me, but also it's like one of those things that I never thought that this would happen. I never thought I'd be in this position to uh, be in the same fight card. Um, even like be in the same fight card, man, and, honestly be on his retirement card that to me was like if you told me that was one day was going to happen for me my debut was going to be on the day that Andrew Silver retires I would have told you man you're smoking crack I think you're crazy (laughs) uh but uh honestly it means the world to me because this is a guy who I idolized for the longest time and even at at points in times you know try to emulate what he does you know especially with the head movement Uh, I don't like getting hit and especially whenever he was when he was rocking and rolling, man, he was out there slipping, dodging, making everybody look stupid with the punches. So 
like to me whenever I, whenever I see that I, I idolize the man I, I idolize that guy so it means the world for for me to have my debut the same the same night he's retiring also it's one of those uh it's one of those you know like a legend retires and another one's making their debut that's how I'm taking it as you know I'm already setting my setting my goals super high because I want to be I want to be where Anderson Silva is right now. I love that mentality. And, of course, it all starts this weekend against Victor Rodriguez. So I want to talk a little bit about that fight because, obviously, he's coming in as a late replacement here. You're supposed to fight somebody else. It got changed. It's sort of been mixed around. For your debut, does that rattle you a little bit? Do you, do you, do you have to change things around, or, or do you just go in with the pretty much the same game plan no matter who you're fighting here? Yeah, man, exactly what you last said. I I, I go in with the same mentality every single time no matter who it is in front of me. I'm gonna strike. I know once I strike with them, they're gonna try to wrestle, and once they once they try to wrestle with me, I'm I'm gonna get them tired and I'm gonna knock them out. Uh, that's that's usually how like a lot of my fights have gone is is just that way. Uh, I strike, they shoot, I strike again, but I knock them out. Uh, you know, cause even against even against uh, other strikers, a striker is gonna shoot in on me no matter what. They want to get that win, but also I never really game plan for. For anybody specifically because even in the regional promotions i had fighters pull out consistently so i never had a a real figure in front of me that i was set to fight for like eight weeks there's only like a handful of times in my uh in my 14 fights where i would where i had someone for sure i was like i think it was like four or five that I had like for sure fights and they weren't late notice replacements mm-hmm. so i've always i've always had this uh this influx of uh, switching of opponents, and to me, it just it makes no difference. Uh, every single time I've had a switch in a switch of, a, of an opponent, I've gotten the finish, and that's going to make no difference uh, whenever October thirty first comes. Well, we're looking forward to it once again, fans. This is Adrian Yanez who fights Victor Rodriguez at UFC Hall versus Silva in Las Vegas this Saturday. Adrian, thanks so much for the time, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for the opportunity. Well, we hope you enjoyed that interview with Adrian Yanez and the one before with Dustin Jacoby. I, once again, am Daniel Gumby-Vreeland. I'm joined now by my co-host, Shockwave Dave Tremonte. Dave, we got to start by talking about Habib. The career is over, but he asked to be put in the top of the pound-for-pound list as he's departing. Here's my question for you. Do you think he deserves it? You know, Gumby, in Shockwave Dave's book, the pound-for-pound list and all pound-for-pound titles really mean nothing. I don't even know what it's supposed to mean. What does it really mean? It means when a guy like Demetrius Mighty Mouse Johnson is mopping people at 125 pounds, they put him on the pound for pound list, number one. And what does that say to me? That if he was as tall as John Jones, he would beat him in a fight? I mean, I don't live in fairyland, Gumby. I live in reality. John Jones would absolutely sauce Demetrius Mighty Mouse Johnson. Pound for pound, it doesn't mean anything to me, but it means something to Habib, so I'll respect that. He got on top of the pound for pound list. Good for him. If he really retired, he went out with that wish, and I'll respect that. I mean, I respect what he's done at 155 pounds a lot more than the fact that he was declared the pound for pound best one week. What do you make of it? Yeah, I, I kind of agree with you on that. For for me, too, the, the pound for pound list is more of like, the goat of the last few fights, you know what I mean? Like, like it's, mm-hmm. it's the guy who's looked the best 
recently. And, and for me, you know, and I, I, I actually do have a vote in this, and I did put Habib at number one. And the reason why is, it, look at his last three fights versus John Jones's last three fights. You know, like, one of those looks much, much fucking better than the other, right? Like, one has subbed three guys in a row. All three of them have either held titles or held interim titles, whereas John Jones has beat up, like, I don't know, Tiago Santos, who's an overgrown middleweight by split decision. Um, I mean, like, he arguably lost to Dominic Anthony Reyes. Anthony Smith. Yeah, arguably lost yeah. to Dominic Reyes. You know, like, he fought Dominic Reyes, Tiago Santos, and, and Dominic Reyes. Uh, and Anth- Yeah, I think I mentioned all three of them. Arguably lost one of them and only finished one of them, whereas the other one subbed three guys in a row. And the other thing to me, too, is, and we, we should probably touch upon this, it's just so wild to me, the evolution of Habib, too, because, like, a lot of people are just like, you know, he takes you down, and if you can stop the takedown, you beat him. First of all, it's, it's obviously not that easy, but second of all, too, like, who saw Habib bailing twice on Mount? Like, he had he had Mount twice on, on Justin Gaethje. He bailed, looked for an armbar, and didn't get it, although he was pretty close. And then he bailed looking for another armbar or a triangle choke, and he got that one. It, it's incredible to me because that was like a, a side of Habib we had never seen before. So, yeah, I, I mean, I guess to go back to your original point, yeah, I guess the pound for pound list has always kind of been a, a silly discussion because, like, you'd never know those things and styles make fights anyway. But, like, yeah, if, if I treat it like the goat of the last three fights, man, what a three-fight run for Habib to go out on. Yeah, so... If you want to talk about, I like the way you phrase that. It's the goat of the last few fights, and he's definitely better than John Jones has been more recently. But I think that's still an unfair comparison because, you know, Jones, I mean, he's been in the UFC longer by about three or four years than Habib. He's been fighting top-level talent way longer than than Habib has. Um, what I think is more interesting, and I don't want to leave this conversation, Gumby, you mentioned that Habib had almost had the armbar, dismounted, we're going to talk about the Gaethje fight. I want to stay on this, though, because there was a lot of talk on the Internet after this fight that Habib was the more dominant UFC champion than was John Jones. I'm sure you saw some of that talk, not just recently, but overall body of work. So curious, where? And I still think this is a conversation we have six now, when the dust has settled on Habib and is he really retired? I put nothing past anyone in the fight business. Feelings change, fat envelopes get passed around. You never know if this guy comes back in three years after talking to his mom again, and maybe she changes her mind. The case being, in the immediate aftermath, where do you stand? Jones, Habib, dominant champion versus dominant champion. Overall body of work. If we're looking at the overall body of work, it's not even close. In the same way that it wasn't even close in the the GOAT of the last few fights, my pound-for-pound ranking, you clearly put Habib over John Jones in those last three fights. It's not close in the same exact way, only this one leans to John Jones. Right? Like, John Jones' overall body of work is so much more impressive than Habib's. It's not even funny. And and for those of you who are looking back at his record and disparaging a win over, you know, Rampage or disparaging a win over Shogun, it's because you're watching 2020 Shogun and you're like, oh, he only beat Shogun. He didn't beat 2020 Shogun. He beat 2012 Shogun or 2014 Shogun or whatever Shogun that was. He didn't beat... 2020 fat rampage he beat like in his prime in a good time 
rampage. Like, the dude blasted a whole era of, like, amazing champions, then watched a whole new wave of contenders came, flushed them down the toilet, and then he watched another wave of contenders come, and he was in the process of flushing all of them, too. Like, the dude's resume is as good as they come. If you're looking for a guy to, who you could call the GOAT, it, who isn't GSP, or maybe Anderson Silva if you like his run, the only other answer to me is John Jones in terms of the people he beat. So, you know, for me, GSP, John Jones are one and one A. And Habib has definitely earned himself the right to be in that conversation along with the likes of Anderson Silva and guys like that. But ultimately, I think GSP and John Jones in terms of total body of work are, is way higher. So I'm right there with you. I think GSP and John Jones also had, you know, maybe a more versatile uh, games uh, and won in different ways. And I know people are going to bring up that GSP was a decision monster for a lot of his career, but, you know, he out-wrestled wrestlers. He outstruck strikers. He did things. I, I just think he, he laid the blueprint for what modern MMA is. Uh, you know, it's best to be pretty damn good at everything instead of specializing in one thing. And when I look at Habib and I don't want to take anything away because you brought this up a little bit earlier, I think, or touched on it. If people don't give Habib striking enough credit, it's good enough to trade with anyone in the division up to and including cracking Conor McGregor because he was thrown off by the takedowns. I mean, that's why that happened in a straight up boxing match. I'm sure Conor, you know, would do better against Habib. But in MMA, Khabib striking was very good when weighted with the rest of his game and people being scared of the takedowns. And it never got the credit that it deserved. His chin was out of this fucking world, just out of this world. At 155, I think people punched him and they probably felt, and I think I've heard this in various interviews, I'll try to look it up after and link to it on our Twitter, but it probably felt like you were punching a light heavyweight. I mean, he was just a thick, thick boy at 155. Uh, So those are some of the underutilized or, I guess, undervalued aspects of Habib's game. But that being said, he kind of won in much the same way most of the time, whereas Jones and GSP, uh, I think, were more versatile. But you can go to our Twitter feed, at MMA, and we really got into this. You know, when you look at – I look at strength of schedule when it comes to comparing fighters. Jones beat – six probably surefire hall of famers and but more importantly six ufc champions in his career so guys who were either champion previously or went on to become champion those six were guys like vitor belfort rashad evans leota machida rampage jackson shogun hua and daniel cormier i mean twice daniel cormier twice (laughs) and that's just you know i mean those are six legendary names Khabib, on the other hand, he beat Connor and he beat RDA. Is RDA a legend? Uh, maybe the biggest RDA fan thinks so. You'd probably have to twist my arm on it. Connor is certainly a legend, but we even went a little deeper than that. Let's look at those fighters and what their records were in title fights, because title fights are the most important fights of a fighter's career. Vitor Belfort was one in three, won a heavyweight tournament. Rashad was one and two. Leota was two and three. Rampage was two and two, Hua one and two, and believe it or not, DC was six three and one no contest. The no contest being an overturned loss to Jones, so really it was six and four. 
Then you go to Khabib and the two fighters he beat who were champions in title fights. Connor was actually only two and one. Kind of funny to think about, right? I'm not counting the interim win over Chad Mendez and all his other fights were at 170. <laughs> and RDA was two and one in title fights. So four and two combined. But would I bring this up? I'm bringing it up because John Jones beat, you know, way more legendary figures, people with more experience. You go, and I'm a huge Khabib fan. Don't get me wrong. We all know this, but you go through Khabib's resume and you're looking mainly at, you know, Gleason Tebow, Tiago Tavares, Abel Trujillo, Pat Healy, Daryl Horcher, and then Journey. Really, I mean, at this point, Michael Johnson, Edson Barbosa, they're guys that sat, you know, sometimes hovering within the top 10, maybe as high as five, but you kind of knew they were never going to be champions. Ditto Ally Akinta. You know, his nicest wins were Connor, Gaethje, and Poirier, and he was dominant in all three. Set a record for three straight submission wins in title fights against those three fighters, and they are great three fighters. So he went out on a freaking great note. But I don't know that Khabib really went to that, like, legendary status or really beat legends himself until as recently as 2018. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree. And that that's why I said, too, that, like, he definitely earned the, like, pound-for-pound pound number one right now in this place and time. But, like, you, you can't argue that, I, or at least I don't think you can. I don't think you can argue, given his body of work and who we saw him against and the longevity of fighting top-name guys, which is very short, I don't think you can claim he has that same legacy. Because, right, like, it would be like... If John Jones had his meteoric rise, he beat guys like Ryan Bader on the way up, and then he starched Shogun, Loyola Machida, and Rampage, who were all the top guys at the time, and then walked away right then, right? Because like that—that's pretty much what Habib did, right? Like he beat the the guys he was supposed to beat on the way up, the guys you're supposed to beat on the way to the title, and then like these last three fights showed us like, okay, there's no doubt he's the best lightweight in the world. It's not close. He may be the greatest lightweight ever, but we really only got to see, like, as far as him being challenged for that belt, him, like, trying to clear out a division, him trying to make that division his own. Like, we, we saw three really good fights out of him. And, and John Jones, we've been seeing a decade of good fights. Uh, yeah, I agree. I'm very comfortable saying he was the best lightweight of all time. Now, I do want to get to the Gaethje fight. We'll break it down real quick before we get to this week's breakdown. Uh, you and I were both uh, out on a limb picking Gaethje, and I actually still don't hate the pick, and I'll tell you why. The first round was spent four minutes and 30 seconds standing on the feet. Gaethje threw off Khabib with some leg kicks, was able to keep the fight standing. Had he been able to do that over the course of three or four rounds, Maybe we're dealing with something else. He cracked him a few times, and it's worth noting Khabib cracked him back. But maybe we were in line for a late Gaethje win, easier said than done, if he was able to stuff more takedowns and not end up on his back. What I did not know, because I had never seen it, was Gaethje was like a day one white belt off of his back defending takedowns. I actually have a new respect for Conor McGregor's jiu-jitsu defense, grappling defense, because when you look at what he did over the course of the first three rounds, Habib had trouble even passing his legs in round one. Connor was doing switches. He was doing a good job of framing everything you would be coaching someone in a jiu-jitsu match to do. Connor did that. 
he just wore down. And by round four, it was over. And I know that's crazy to say because it kills me when Nate Diaz is locking in rear naked chokes, when Khabib is locking in rear naked chokes, and Connor's not even bothering to fight the arms. But I view that as more of a aspect of a gas tank being empty and maybe just a little something in Connor's mental game, which I think is extraordinarily strong. And he sometimes wills himself to wins and intimidates people. But when he feels he's beat, he just can't be bothered to start defending like an arm choke from the back. That's what I view that as. But I have a new respect for at least those first few rounds. He put up more of a fight. Gaethje, I mean, clearly that's something he would need to work on. You know, if Tony were to have gotten that fight to the ground, it would have been a completely different story. He was just never able to do it. Um, He might never fight anyone the likes of Khabib again, so maybe this isn't something he needs to work on. But I do for sure now know that I do not trust Justin Gaethje, you know, someone on top of him mounted. That's not going to end well for him. And we saw that this past weekend. Where do you go with the rest of the division? And I don't want to say, do you lose respect for Gaethje? Because Khabib is a certain animal that no one was able to figure out a Rubik's cube unto himself. But does this sort of, you know, make you lose faith in the Justin Gaethje stock? Not necessarily, because I'm going to pose a question to you before we talk about where we go with the rest of the division. Because I, I'm, I am of the belief that that was not Gaethje's best performance on the mat. And I think it had more to do with mental space than it did his physical abilities on the mat. I think he he went in with the game plan that he was going to stuff enough of Connor or uh, Khabib's takedowns, Connor's takedowns, Habib's takedowns, and he was going to have success on the feet early. And I think he had that, but I think he was deterred by what happened when he hit Habib hard. And then when Habib first got him down in that first round. Look at the, if you go back and watch it again, which I'm sure a lot of you will, go back and look at the look on his face. It is a, a, a look of like, oh fuck, this is bad. Like the, the look on his face the first time he gets taken down is like, oh man, this guy is not playing with this wrestling. And it, it looks almost like he's a little defeated. And then like for a second, like his legs just don't work. Like, his legs don't make any attempt to, like, gain a guard or a half guard. He just watches Habib walk into his mouth. So, like, I almost wonder if, like, there was either some sort of adrenaline thing or he was so locked into some game plan that he just forgot, like, forgot what he was doing in there. He, he didn't do what he was supposed to do. Because I have a tough time believing that Justin Gaethje is a guy who doesn't put up a guard when he, he is taken down, his legs literally were like flat for a moment as Habib walked to guard or walked him out. So like, I, I just don't really believe that that's all of him. So that's one of the reasons I'm not selling, you know, my stock in Justin Gaethje. As far as where this division goes, I know there are people out there being like, eight man tournament, 16 man tournament. Yeah, of course, we would all love to see that. The bottom line is, is what's going to happen is that the the Conor McGregor Dustin Poirier fight that is scheduled for January or at least rumored to be scheduled for January is now a title fight. And whether or not you think those two are the two that belong in the title fight or not, it doesn't matter because it adds luster to a Conor McGregor fight. It gives Dustin Poirier a chance to like write his story again, and it's the next big lightweight fight happening. And ultimately, that's what the UFC cares about, right? It's a big lightweight well, I, fight that you can add extra intrigue to. I that you know I thought the same thing, but the problem is that's scheduled for 170 right now. I know that sounds crazy because they're both lightweights, but I guess Connor doesn't really like to make a cut. 
But I think to your point, it is the next fight with two big lightweight names. And maybe they just need to get on the phone and give Connor an extra million and tell him to go cut that weight because they want to make it a title fight. Yeah, or tell him he's going to be replaced by Tony Ferguson, who would 100% take that fight in January to fight Dustin Poirier if you told him the belt was on the line and it was going to be, you know, Ferguson versus Poirier for the belt in January. He would 100% replace Connor. You just write Connor out of that situation because it seems like the ink isn't dried on this deal yet anyway. So, like, there's negotiation tactics that'll happen to try to make this 155-pound title fight. And I almost guarantee that that's what's going to happen. And in those same tokens, as far as matching up the rest of the division, obviously I'd like to see Tony Ferguson in a big fight, but I have a feeling we're probably going to see Justin Gaethje versus Michael Chandler for the number one contenders. I I personally like Gaethje a lot in that fight. I think Gaethje probably mops the floor with Chandler. Um, But obviously we can discuss that if that gets booked. And and then I just hope they find something for Tony Ferguson that makes sense. And I, I don't know what that is necessarily, but... Um, you know, he deserves to be in that picture just as much as the rest of them. And, and unfortunately, it's a five-person picture right now. And, you know, it's not it's not WWE. We can't have a, a, a what, is, what do they call it? Fatal four? No, fatal four-way. Triple threat. They can't have a triple yeah, threat fatal match. Four-way. <laughs> triple threat. They can't have right. a triple threat match. So, you know, I, I'm going to go with, uh, I, I think they're going to probably just make Poirier versus McGregor a title fight. Right. Well, it's very interesting. And I do sort of feel like Khabib getting those big wins off of Poirier, Connor and uh, Gaethje uh, towards the end. Sort of, I don't really have a lot of excitement around any of the other guys just because I've seen Khabib, you know, mop all of them uh, other than Tony. Um, So I guess I'm actually most interested in Tony being in a title fight because it kind of takes the division in a new way. He never went against Khabib. But to me, it would be kind of sad to just have Gaethje like, you know, I felt this way, too, with um, when Johnny Hendricks fought Robbie Lawler after GSP retired. I'm one of the few people I think GSP won that fight despite taking way more damage than Hendricks. I just think he yeah, I think he eked out round one. And then to see Hendricks fight Lawler, it just sort of felt like. I don't know, just like it wasn't GSP because I just saw GSP beat Hendricks in my mind. I know a lot of people felt differently, but anyway, that's another story for another day. I'm sure the 155-pound title picture will clear its way out, and we'll be here to discuss it like a couple of Gab and Gabbies like we've been known to do. Gumby, let's move on to our favorite segment on the show. It's Fights, Dogs, Parlays for UFC 12. Uh, We have been doing, if I have to pat myself on the back, what did we do last week? I mean, we were near perfect other than picking Gaethje, right? Yeah, we were near perfect other than picking Gaethje, but I will tell you that both our underdog and our parlay hit big last week. We had Shavkat Rachmanov, who wound up actually being a favorite by fight time, so maybe all of our listeners ran to the bookies as soon as they heard us and put a bunch of money down on him. But uh, he picked up a big submission win over Kale Vera, and then also our parlay hit. So make sure you are tuning into these picks each and every week because they are going to be making you money. Boom. So this week's editions of Fights, Dogs, Parlays, UC Vegas 12. Pay extra attention, people, because we're good at what we do. But before we do it, Gumby, does anyone sponsor this segment? 
Absolutely, this segment is brought to you by Maroon Social, M-A-R-U-N-E. Maroon Social is the one and only social media app for the martial arts enthusiast. Whether you do kickboxing, judo, sambo, or jujitsu, it does not matter. Log your training sessions using their innovative system that allows you to tag techniques so that you can stay on top of your training. Plus, you can log competitions and weigh-ins and so much more. Maroon Social, wherever it is you download apps. All right, Uriah Hall, we'll start with the main event, is facing uh, the legend, Anderson Silva, in what will be his last fight, according to him. But you never know, people change their mind in this business. We've seen it before, but I think it's pretty safe to say this will be his last fight. Uriah Hall is the minus 225 favorite. He's on a two-fight win streak after losing to Paula Costa via TKO. He beat Bavon Lewis and Antonio Carlos Jr. Anderson Silva... It's been rough to watch. Um, Since beating Stefan Bonner in October of 2012, uh, he is one and six with one no contest. The overturned Nick Diaz win, Um, originally a unanimous decision win for Silva, but he tested positive for the hit in the juice box. So he beat Derek Brunson here in the last seven years and he's coming off losses to Israel Adesanya and Jared Cannonier, uh, which makes him the plus 185 dog who you take him. So I will say, first of all, that this is a, a much harder fight to determine the winner of than, than a lot of people are making it sound. Uriah Hall is one of the flakiest dudes that it, when it comes to picking a fight, right? Like he absolutely steamrolled everybody on the ultimate fighter and then looked god-awful against Calvin Gastelum in the finale, right? And then then you could do a similar thing with, like, even just round-to-round round against Bevin Lewis or, like, you know, depending on which Gegard Mousasi fight you're talking about, he looked like, you know, a world beater or the worst guy in the division. And if anybody is going to have trouble with stepping in with an absolute legend and a guy who Uriah Hall said was an idol of his... If anybody is going to have trouble with that, it seems like Uriah Hall is the type of guy to have that trouble. And I'm just, I keep getting brought back to this fight between, I don't know if you've seen it, Mirko Krokop and Pat Barry back in the day. Pat Barry had just gushed. Of course I've seen that fight. How dare you even insinuate that I haven't seen that fight, but keep going. But Pat Barry gushed about Mirko Krokop and the ability to fight like one of his idols before the fight. And he went in and he high-fived Mirko Krokop about seven times during the fight. I think he hugged him once. Like, they smiled and had a joke. And ultimately, he got motherfucking choked out by Mirko Krokop. A guy with almost no ground game to speak of. And, and to me, that that's kind of like the, the feeling I get on this one. Is that like, yes, it, gun to my head, I'm picking Uriah Hall to win a decision where they both throw fancy strikes and nobody lands any big ones. But, like, I wouldn't be shocked if Uriah Hall goes in there, he respects his idol too much, and Anderson Silva gets that, like, right out into the sunset fight. I think a lot of us hope he he could get. All right. I'm not going to disagree with you. I do think it's Uriah Hall's fight. That's who I'm picking. But I know what you mean. Uriah Hall can be a uh, mercurial figure. Look it up on dictionary.com. All right. Greg Hardy is always controversial, uh, but, you know, this fight's going to be fun. Minus 320 favorite to Maurice Green, the plus 260 dog. Hardy, one and one in his last two. Coming off a win off Jorgen DeCastro. Lost to Alexander Volkov, the unanimous decision before that. Uh, beat Ben Sosali before that, but it was overturned due to Inhaler Gate. All told, he is three 
and won with one no contest in the UFC, and really the no contest was a win. So pretty good at the U- in, in the UFC so far. And I think if he beats Maurice Green, which is what I'm picking, uh, I need to see him against someone better. He needs to take that jump up in competition, and we need to just go all the way with Greg Hardy. I'm sort of sick of him fighting these middling fighters, and I know that's weird to say coming off the Alexander Volkov loss, who Volkov is pretty good, and he is one of those top fighters, but I want to see it again, and I think it's worth noting that he did lose to Volkov, um, but I need to see it again. I need to see him against you know top-level competition. Maurice Green's coming off a win over Gian Volante via arm triangle choke. Volante did not look good in that fight. Uh, but. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Uh, and before that, Maurice Green lost to Alexi Olenek via armbar. No shock there. Got TKO'd by Sergei Pavlovich before that. Had a nice three-fight win streak to enter the UFC, though, with wins over Michael Batista, Jeff Hughes, Junior Albini. So all told, he's 4-2 and two in the UFC, but a 260 dog here. Who you taking? You know, I, I actually am leaning towards taking Maurice Green here, and I, I think definitely that you're gambling, too. Maurice Green, ton of value at plus 260. Because if you look at those guys who, who Greg Hardy is beating and like Ben Sosley and Juan Adams and Jorgen DeCastro, uh, all of those guys were very tentative in there with him. I mean, like, maybe not Juan Adams. Juan Adams came out like a bat out of hell and get tagged. But like, Jorgen DeCastro and Ben Sosley looked afraid to throw punches with him. The, the guy who like decided to fight technically in Alexander Volkov, because he can, he's a top five guy in the division. It's the guy who pretty much dealt with Greg Hardy in really easy fashion, right? And I I think Maurice Green is probably not that good, but Maurice Green is only losing to ranked guys, right? Like, he's only lost to Alexei Olenek and Sergei Pavlovich, who are both in the top 15. And I think you're you're right. Those are the types of guys we want to see Greg Hardy against, right? Like, if he is a top guy, he should be able to fight Alexei Olenek. If he is a top guy, he should be able to fight Sergei Pavlovich. And I actually think both of those guys probably beat Greg Hardy in similar fashion that they beat Maurice Green. So I actually like Maurice Green here for a couple of reasons. One, I think the length gives Greg Hardy problems, right? Like he beat up Jorgen DeCastro and Ben Sosely, who are both short, fat guys. Whereas Maurice Green is a freaking tower. The dude is enormous. He's freaking six foot seven. And in six foot seven already gave Greg Hardy problems once, right? Like he lost to Alexander Volkov, who is notoriously a big, tall, lanky guy. So Obviously, Green's slower than Volkov, not as good at boxing, but, you know, he's got some grappling in there, too, and I think as long as he stays fresh in this fight, doesn't get tagged early, I think late in this fight, he's got a huge cardio advantage and could probably finish Greg Hardy in there. All right, we'll move now more to a lightning round fashion the rest of the way. One more fight to break down, and it's a really exciting one, in my opinion. Bryce Mitchell is undefeated in the MMA, and he's uh, undefeated in the UFC, obviously, as well. 4-0, and he's shown some really great jiu-jitsu. He's a great personality. He's a good follow. He's a minus-155 favorite to Andre Touchy-Feely, the plus-135 dog. Feely uh, is on uh, coming off a win over Charles Jourdain, lost to Sadiq Youssef before that. Really one of those guys, picks up two wins, then a loss. Been in the UFC now for uh, seven years, going on his eighth year. Who are you taking here? I- I'm going to go with, with Bryce Mitchell. I'm going to go with Thug Nasty. And I-, I think the reason being is that like I, I doubted him quite a bit. I-, I was one of the guys in there writing off you know Bryce Mitchell as probably not being good enough to grapple somebody like Charles Rosa. And not only did he go in and grapple Charles Rosa, who is a you know a talented black belt, 
But he went in there and absolutely made him look like a first-day white belt in a violent fashion. His grappling was incredible. And, and to me, the fact that he did that to, to Charles Rosa and made him look so bad, I actually think he can do that to Feely here. Feely is a, probably a better wrestler, but probably not a better jiu-jitsu specialist than Charles Rosa. And for those reasons alone, I'm going to go with Bryce Mitchell here. And I think he probably subs... Andre Feely too, which is incredible to say because he, he's never been subbed in the... Oh, that's not true. He got subbed by Gattofredo Pepe way back in 2015, but it's been a long time since we've seen Andre Feely get subbed, but I think we're about to see it again. Our underdog of the week is Cole Williams, a plus 120 dog. We're picking him over Jason Witt. Break her down. So I actually think both of these guys probably shouldn't be in the UFC. They're, they're both very much low-rung guys here. They got beaten short notice. They were late fill-ins. This is their chance to have a second fight. However, I just think Cole Williams is a much better version of Jason Witt. He is able to put together combinations, which is more than you can say for Jason Witt in a lot of situations. He just throws like big bomb skis nonstop. And and I think Cole Williams here has the the ability to pick him apart before he lands that big shot. And and at plus money in a a fight that you think is pretty much a coin flip in the fact that they're throwing bombs, it's definitely worth a play here. All right. And our parlay to play, Miles Johns, minus 185. Pair them together with Courtney Casey, minus 235. It's going to get you plus money. It's going to be plus 120. Let's hear it. So I love Miles Johns, first of all. I, I think he's probably much higher ranked in the Bantamweight division than a lot of people have him. And a lot of that is because he took that flying knee knockout last time out by Mario Batista. Like, that, that's kind of a fluky knockout. Whether or not you think Batista is better than Johns, that's up for interpretation. But I think he's such a good wrestler and he's such a good physical presence that that's going to give Kevin Nativi Dodd here a lot of problems because that's the type of game Kevin Nativi Dodd plays. So I just see him as a better version of Nativi Dodd. So I like those odds at negative 185. And for me, Courtney Casey here is a slam dunk. You could play her straight up at negative 235. I think there's tons of value in that because Priscilla Cachoeira is a fighter who just gets taken down a little bit too easy. And in addition to that, her top, her bottom game is not phenomenal. So you're going to see her against Courtney Casey, somebody who is very physically strong, who has got great top control. And I think if she doesn't suffer, we'll at least control her nonstop for 15 minutes. So I like those two together to get plus money on the return. Boom. We hope you enjoyed this edition of Fights, Dogs, and Parlays. We think we're pretty good at what we do. Follow us on Twitter at SoftTurtleMMA as the fights are going. Let us know if we did you right or did you dirty with our picks. Uh, Gumby, that wraps up this edition of Fights, Dogs, and Parlays. Why don't you wrap up the show as a whole? And that's going to do it for another episode of Top Turtle MMA Podcast. We want to thank you, the fans, for tuning in each and every week. Couldn't do what we do without you guys. We also couldn't do what we do without our sponsors, Maroon Social and the ProPace Sports Metric app. Make sure to download both of those to your phone right now. We also want to thank Flow Combat for having our mothership tied down each and every week. And we want to remind you guys to check us out on Twitter at Top Turtle MMA and same thing on Instagram at Top Turtle MMA. Until next week, I'm Daniel Gumby Vreeland and he's Shockwave Dave Tremonte. We'll see you then.